Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we have a special episode of the podcast. It's part of our 10-part series at TPM. For those of you who are just listeners to the podcast, that is the news <laughs> that website. Is our website. Yeah, exactly. that is our website. That's what that's uh, what we do. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time at TPM. It's an ambitious project, something we haven't quite done maybe ever before, never or at, at least not scale. a while. Yeah. yeah, never at this scale. So it is a, a 10-part series on voting rights and democracy that we uh, kicked off in July and is going to run through just after the election. So we are, we are taking the period of the election when obviously people are focused on voting in elections as a key time to kind of dig into these issues because they are extremely important to our contemporary politics. Uh, Voting rights are under threat and siege today in a way that they have not been in in decades. Uh, Certainly, the the sort of the, the, the rollback that you see is something that we have not seen really since for for more than a century although obviously the state of voting rights in say 1950 was dramatically worse than it is today since since a big chunk of the population mainly in the south was not allowed to vote at all so what we're going to do during this series and most of the series will be the articles that we publish on the website We're also going to do a number of episodes of the podcast that either are interviews with people who have written the different articles or people who are just key figures, experts, activists, and so forth in this in this broader topic of, of democracy and, and voting rights. So today, we're going to talk to Gregory Downs, who's a professor of history at UC Davis, and he has written a fascinating article on voting rights, basically voting rights during the 19th century. And we're going to get into all the details in a few minutes. But basically, the way that the end of the 19th century sees a dramatic pulling back from voting rights, pulling back from democracy. And it's not only with the imposition of Jim Crow in the South. It is also happening in the North and particularly focuses on immigrants. Uh, A lot of people in the North want to keep immigrants from voting. And that is, you know, predominantly Irish and Germans in the North, later Italians and Jews. Uh, In the West, it's Chinese immigrants. And what I was really struck by in in reading this piece is I was not aware of the the degree of interplay between voting restrictions in the north and the south. I knew that these two things were happening sort of simultaneously, but what one of the things that Greg brings out in his piece is that when white southerners were looking for angles basically for, you know, how do we stop the freed slaves from voting when there's constitutional amendment that says we can't just say black people can't vote. Like, what are, you know, what are, what are some workarounds we can use? In a lot of cases, they got ideas from states in the north, states in like states like Massachusetts, which had rules that were focused on uh, disenfranchising the uneducated, the illiterate, uh, or in a lot of cases, just immigrants, which ob- who you know, by definition, are often illiterate in English um, or have limited, you know, uh, new immigrants, limited ability to uh, read and write in English. Fascinating, fascinating stuff there. Let me say um, one thing uh, about this series. The series, we have a, a sponsor for the series, which is the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, one of the country's two large teachers unions. They're called the teachers union. They have other professionals besides teachers. Um, 
you can, depending on where you are in the country, probably there are teachers in, 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 in some of your local schools who are, who are part of the AFT. I want to give a shout out to them because, again, this kind of project requires resources. It's a huge institutional lift. So they uh, thought this was an important uh, project. And they are the sponsor of, of this series. Just to be clear, these are, as with all sponsorships, they have no input on the editorial content. But I just want to give them a call out because uh, this series, which we are uh, devoting so much energy and resources to, wouldn't be possible uh, without them. So thank you so much to the uh, AFT for, for, for sharing our belief that the subject of this series is as important as we believe it is. Let me also uh, give a shout out to the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast, which, as you know, is born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx. Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew, but you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money, too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only 30 bucks. That's less than a buck a cup. And shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So kind of a, a joint sh- shout-out this yeah, absolutely. time. You know AFT what? and Grady's Cold Brew. You know what I think teachers might love, actually, is coffee. You know, uh, speaking as a yeah. the son of two two public school teachers, recently retired. But uh, and now, were they were, were they uh, NEA or AFT? Do you know? Um, I want to say NEA. Okay, yeah, yeah I think judging, they, judging by the mail that I kind of recall. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that probably. My, my I, well, I think yeah. you know, it's it it depends by region and even right. probably school district. Yeah, and, you're and probably right. So let's talk to uh, Gregory Downs about voting rights in the 19th century. So, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, I I, I just reread the uh, piece that we are going to uh, discuss today, and I really loved it. As as some of our readers know, uh, I'm a lapsed historian myself, and um, (laughs) this isn't my period. I'm, I'm... sort of really, uh, you know, 17th century uh, U.S. stuff. But as, as as you know, as you know, when anybody gets a Ph.D. in American history, you obviously cover it, it, at least most of the history, if not into the 20th century. In any case, w- when we first wanted to commission a piece like this, the the key that I was so interested in was just helping people understand that in the late 19th century, there is a broad move against uh, the franchise, basically. And and most people know about what happened at the end of Reconstruction, but they don't know that it was much broader and disenfranchised many people and also had its manifestation, I guess, in what we might call like elite articulate ideology, um, kind of a move against, uh, I don't want to say... Democratic idealism isn't isn't the way that that historians always like to talk. But in any case, what I what I loved about this piece is is I learned a great deal about it. I, I did not realize the extent of interplay, literal interplay, between the the implementation of Jim Crow and disenfranchisement of African Americans in the South. And what was happening in the same time in the North and how there was actually borrowing techniques, as, as, as it were. Tell us about that. What are some examples of how these two things, and we're talking here about the 1870s through the very beginning of the 20th century, how these two things weren't just simultaneous, but that interplay between these two processes? That's right. I mean, it's uh, you're right that most people who know about Jim Crow assume that what happened happened solely in the South and solely to African-American men. And in many ways, that's the right way to think about it when you think about the aggregate impact. Um, but um, as, I, as I tried to show and as, you, uh, and as you suggest, in fact, the history is, is much murkier. Um, and that as Alexander Kesar, who wrote the leading survey of voting rights history, noted that as early as the 1850s and maybe even as early as the 1830s, you can see a northeastern turn against 
of voting rights growing because of the influx of immigrants. And so that many of the things we take for granted that shape our ballot box today of in-person registration, registration days that happen on different days than on the day of voting, lengthened residency requirements, these start to spread through New England in the 1850s. And Keysar actually speculates that were it not for the Civil War, uh, we would have really seen a rollback of voting rights across the country uh, as, that, as that movement flowered. Then the Civil War, uh, end of slavery, enfranchisement, and this democratic shock to the system. But by the 1880s, um, this older anti-immigrant um, movement in the Northeast is rising again, and the methods that they're using are being put in place again, along with one additional one that we also take for granted, which is what our ballots look like. Um, up until the 1880s, it was very common for 19th century Americans to walk up to a wild, raucous, often drunken, sometimes uh, violent voting place, and there to have different people handing them pre-printed ballots. And so you knew who you were voting for. In certain ways, your connection was not to the president. It was to the person who you trusted to hand you the ballot. Right. Um, and that also made it really easy for barely literate people or people illiterate in English, some of whom might have been literate in other languages, to cast their vote. In 1888, Massachusetts and New York pioneer what we call the Australian ballot. Sometimes it's described as the secret ballot, but ballots were secret before this. What was different is that the state government pre-printed the ballot and the choices, and you didn't see it until you walked into the voting booth. So, so basically, if before this, like I go, you know, I, Josh, go to the, go to the local, you know, maybe the county courthouse or wherever it is the voting's going to take place, and there's uh, people from the Democratic Party there, dep- you know, depending on what era we're talking about, people from the Democratic Party there, people from the Republican Party there. And if I'm basically Democrat, I go over to the Democratic Party guy. He gives me a sheet of paper, which basically has the names of all the Democrats who the kind of the, you know, the Democratic Party <laughs> committee wants. And I just hand in that sheet. And, th- and by that, my... You know, I've sort of fast forwarded all my all my decision making and and it's kind of easy. I don't need to know who's running for this, you know, kind of clerkship and stuff like this. I know I'm I'm a Democrat and I just kind of grab that ballot and that's it. And there is no kind of like official New York state ballot. They're all kind of turned in and it's sort of uh, I mean, it does sound wildly chaotic from our perspective. But do I have that basically right that that kind of what was how it could work at the time? That's correct. Um, There are some minor exceptions, but in general, that was the way people experienced the vote. And I think you summed up the bad part of it is that it makes it um, voting highly um, susceptible to fraud or intimidation. Um, Even if you cast the ballot in secret, people could see who you were taking it from. Sometimes people, newspapers printed them ahead of time. Um, and, you know, you could walk in with a ballot rolled up that you had cut out of a, a newspaper, which, as you know, in the period were highly partisan themselves. Um, but the good part of it was that it made voting incredibly easy and simple. And that the, it did mean that the area around the voting place was a completely different, much more of a somewhere between a party and a brawl uh, than the current stage and stage-managed uh, voting booths. And so with both of with exactly what that would imply, that it was much more fraught and open to intimidation and also much more exciting and interesting. Right. And so people voted because it was easy and it was exciting. It was a way of expressing identity. Um, and, and, but that's... But just yeah, to, if I can add one other point, but the downside would be that I go to the polling place and maybe my boss is there. And like... Exactly. And, and so there is that kind of... So there is a downside to this too you're it's you know semi-secret ballot for you know, for lack of a better word and so all sorts of intimidation and peer pressure are possible and some of the people who had been pushing for change like henry george a giant of 19th century labor 
had pushed for it, had connections to Australia where this method had been put in place a couple of decades earlier and had learned about it there. And he had long thought that it would be a panacea. Well, panacea is probably too strong, but he had long thought that it would be one way of minimizing uh, bosses' power over their workers because he feared that, that the boss would stand at a mill town and watch who the workers took um, their ballots from. And, of course, there's every reason to think that at times that happened. Same with registration, which has a slightly earlier genesis, but in many ways tied to an earlier pre-Civil War fears of immigrant voting. Uh, There's no question that registration is the single most effective way of preventing people from voting. Um, and, uh, and, and in ways that we could imagine now that if, uh, if a state, which has the power to, could order a complete re-registration um, before the next election, it's unquestionable that voter turnout would drop significantly. Uh, and registration, therefore, has these terrible consequences, but it also did arise from a problem, which is that people would march from one precinct to the next and right, give right. a different name or a different address. And so for a historian, there's always, as you know, that two sides. It's, it's a, there were real problems that these movements responded to, but we also have to acknowledge the consequences of their actions um, were, went far beyond reducing fraud and seem particularly targeted in the Northeast at new waves of immigrants. Right. It's, it is interesting because, it, it, as you say, I mean, without, I think the present conversation is, re, is really, and I think this is accurate, that there is... A, a trivial to almost non-existent level of certainly in-person voter fraud, where someone comes and like, I'm not who I right. say I am, or I'm going to 10 places or stuff like that. Obviously, there's sometimes issues with absentee ballots and so forth. And, and But pretty much all of the, in the modern era, the, the, the only examples of actual fraud are almost always when the registrar is in it. It's not the voters doing it. It's some. It's people on the other side. So it is hard to imagine you would not have some registration system because that is basically how you prevent people from going. You know, just make <laughs> making the rounds, kind of like a SantaCon of uh, of <laughs> voter fraud, right? Kind of, you know. <laughs> SantaCon is probably about right, though, yeah, ex- tragically, ex- with even more violence. Yeah, ex- 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 exactly. Um, and yet, it do- and it does come in to a significant degree to try to keep keep a certain class of people from voting. And and as you as you suggested, there is this trend. There there is this pattern that, as historians, we know from American history, you have certain kinds of reforms that often come from elites that are, to a certain extent, um, based in a set of values that are recognizable and even um, uh, benign to us, you know, that voting, that that you should know who you're voting for. You shouldn't, you know, just shouldn't, some party boss just shouldn't hand you a slip and you kind of just, you know, kind of put it in the thing. There certainly shouldn't be fraud (laughs) and, and, you know, it shouldn't, you know, shouldn't get beat up at the polling place, all these kind of thing, you know, have a very, a, a certain kind of vision of what these should be like. And yet these reforms are almost always shot through with a, a, a vision of certain kind of people either need help to do what's right or shouldn't be given the freedom to do what's right as it were. And that's why you, you get into basically, you know, today we, you know, Italians and Greeks and Poles and, 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 and Jews from Eastern Europe, that's almost kind of, you know, that, that's almost as American as apple pie, we think of it. But at the time, like say, uh, Italians from Southern Italy were, these are kind of illiterate peasants. I mean, in a literal sense, I mean, in many cases, they were illiterate peasants when they when they came to this country. But certainly to to many Americans, how can you give these people the, the ability to vote? It, may, it makes no sense. Now, one thing I was very struck by in your piece, you mentioned that one of the reasons we have a thin 15th Amendment, the amendment which the Voting Rights mm-hmm. Amendment is because, and when I say thin, 
It doesn't give a right to vote. It creates prohibitions on states limiting the right to vote on certain bases, especially race. And you argue that one of the reasons that it's thin like that was that there were Northerners who said, we got our own people we want to maybe disenfranchise. So let's keep this, let's keep this narrow. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. It's disconcerting, like many historical uh, conjunctions are, um, because it um, doesn't fit in a 21st century view. Uh, from our standpoint, we tend both to sort of imagine that there are people for expanded voting and retracted voting, and that um, it kind of within each group, uh, things work relatively consistently or coherently. And we also tend, as 21st century people, to imagine that people think racially in a broad context, that people who are racist against African Americans are also racist against other people of color, a term we use that would in many ways have baffled 19th century Americans. Um, But none of those things were quite true in the middle of the 19th century. So you could have the very people in the 15th Amendment fights who were the most adamant saying that the outcome of the war had to be the enfranchisement of African American men, mostly in the South, although the amendment, of course, applied everywhere, but the vast majority of them living in the South, and also say, but by the way, it's fine that uh, states like Rhode Island can contemplate uh, exclusions, requirements that office holders be Protestant or not be Catholic, and it's fine that um, Massachusetts and other states have made it harder for immigrants to move into voting. And it shows both that they're not thinking in a sort of whites versus people of color framework, um, but they're thinking of African Americans in one set of ways and applying very different views to Catholic immigrants um, and to Asians, that there are many people, and not to mention Native Americans. And it also shows that paradoxically, many of the champions of voting rights in the South were among the people, especially around Boston, who were champions of voter restriction in Boston. So in the 15th Amendment fights, there are proposals that would come closer to establishing an affirmative right to vote. And then that um, doesn't take off uh, because there is a real commitment still even among many radical Republicans to the idea of local self-determination. So then they turn to a set of proposals um, that would have a vastly expanded number of categories that were protected. Um, And so to say that you can't deny the right to vote, not just for race or previous or color or previous condition of servitude, but a a proposal that garnered quite a bit of support said education um, or religion um, and several other related literacy and several other related categories. Well, if that had passed... Um, That would have made the work of the late 19th century, especially in the Jim Crow South, much more difficult. But one of the reasons it doesn't pass is that a group of Northern and Western Republicans say, we're fine with enfranchising all the black men in the South, but we do not want to disrupt state laws in New England that might be privileging literacy. And they certainly don't want to enfranchise large numbers of the growing population of Chinese moving into the far west. And so one of the reasons it gets narrowed down to race, color, previous condition of servitude is this compromise um, to preserve those kinds of exclusions in the north and the west. Um, And what they hoped would still salvage the enfranchisement of African-Americans in the South. There are people at the time who say, once you establish that it's okay to discriminate based on education or literacy, it will immediately turn in this tragic direction. Um, And there are others who say, well, we'll fix that with our suffrage laws and with our our voter enforcement, with our enforcement laws. Um, But in fact, those predictions turn out to be true, that it may well be that the 19th century would have ended with voter exclusion in the South, but by opening up the categories of education and literacy, it made it much easier for Southern, white Southern um, constitutional conventions and legislators to accomplish that. One point I think you allude to is that 
we now see this history as an sort of an unfolding a process of equality, racial equality, later gender equality, and so forth. And as you say, even at that time, you could have people who had a deep belief in African-American suffrage, but at the same time says wanted to prevent Chinese immigrants from voting. And that did not seem like a contradiction in any way. So it, I, I guess it seems to me one thing that's important for people today, people today to understand about the history is that in the Civil War era, uh, let's say, uh, you know, unionist sentiment in the North, broadly Republican sentiment, etc., in many ways saw African Americans as a, a specific minority slash faction within American, the, the American context. And the, the result of the Civil War dictated the enfranchisement of that group. It also would have a very direct effect on the politics of Southern states, obviously, if, if African-Americans could vote or not to vote. But it was this very specific thing. Like, we fought this war over slavery. We won. Slavery's abolished. And now those, free, those ex-slaves can vote. But that, that was very specific. There wasn't, for many people at least, it wasn't some broad sense of, like, we're not going to discriminate on the basis of race anymore. Absolutely. There's a couple of interesting ways of trying to, to make this concrete, because it is a challenging thing for people to, to wrestle with. Um, one way is to think about the role of religion. Uh, and this is, is baffling to many 21st century Americans, but one answer um, why Republicans believed African Americans could be good citizens, but Native Americans, um, Chinese, and many European immigrants could not, was because African Americans are Protestant. Um, and the deep weariness uh, of Catholicism, and specifically, uh, and the fear of the dictates of the Pope, um, drives a lot of what would be a Northeastern, Whiggish, and then Republican vision of the problems of citizenship for Catholics, um, a fear that, they, that the ability to think independently is a particularly Protestant virtue. Um, and revealed in the incredible range and, and differences of Protestant sects. And, of course, Northern Republicans had lots of quibbles about the kinds of Protestantism practiced by African Americans in the South. Um, but there's been some really interesting work on uh, the grouping of Catholics with so-called heathens as a way of explaining that they fit more like uh, in, the, in the parlance of the time, that they were more like Native Americans or Chinese um, than like African Americans as a way of, of justifying uh, this kind of, of movement. Another way would be partisan, um, because, uh, because of the ways that we think about voter restriction now. It, alas, has turned out that Democrats largely see themselves both ideologically but practically in favor of voter expansion. Um, that wasn't always the case even in the 20th century, which is one of the reasons why you get these interesting coalitions that develop in the uh, Cold War era. In the 19th century, Northern Republicans were pretty clear that African Americans were going to vote uh, Republican by massive uh, majorities, but that Irish Catholics, and to a lesser degree perhaps German Catholics, were going to vote Democratic um, by almost equally overwhelming numbers. And so for this reason... And that those weren't, and that those weren't like prejudices or assumptions. I mean, those were broadly accurate assumptions, just to just yes, first to be clear. I mean, right, this, is, right. this is just true. Right. Uh, and so for this reason, you get a real confusion when we look back, when we look back for a kind of ideological perfection, um, you're going to have a hard time finding it, because Republicans at once could say the only way that we can protect our party is to expand voting in the South and reduce it in the North. Right. <laughs> uh, and this shapes a, uh, the ways that the enforcement acts that are meant to enforce the 15th Amendment, which in many ways are really quite broad, uh, much broader than uh, sometimes our negative view of the 15th Amendment, 
wording, which is based in a real place, as we talked about before, that its wording was narrow. But almost immediately, Congress starts enacting pretty broad laws saying that they fulfill the section of the Voting Rights Act that, of, the, of the 15th Amendment that allowed uh, for the enforcement of its goals. And those uh, enforcement acts allow the use of the army to be called in to protect voting places, um, allow for federal investigations, indictments. Um, there are thousands of indictments of, uh, of people, uh, mostly white Southerners, for violating election laws. But they also have, many of them, several of them, have this interesting doubleness. Where do they apply to? They have a abstractly written, they apply to places of a size over so-and-so, right. in which they apply to the South and to New York City. Right. Right. From the first, the Republican goal is to have federal election supervisors at polling places in the South to protect black Republicans, and at polling places in New York City to keep immigrant voters from repeat voting or fraudulently voting. Right. And, um, and probably a spillover maybe from voting at all, if possible. And perhaps yeah. from voting at all. Right. You know, right. That's not the way they frame it. And Democrats, meanwhile, increasingly are the champions of open voting in the North and of closed voting in the South. Um, and it's really hard to, uh, one way I sometimes... It's a hard hypothetical to imagine, um, but we could imagine today that if there was a, uh, it's a very hard hypothetical to imagine, but if there was a massive migration of um, people who were ardent Trumpists, how long would it take before Democrats developed a more nuanced view of voting rights? Right, right, parameters? right. No, that's... Um, it, it, a cynic would say maybe not that long. Um, I would hope, as someone who believes in it, as a general policy, that you know we would be able to articulate um, that value even in the face of uh, something that had a negative partisan impact. But you could imagine in that hypothetical that voting rights discussions would change pretty quickly on both sides. Yeah, th there was, this is one of the points that I tried to bring out in 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 my introduction to the series. Yeah, which, which was which is that. The voting rights democracy issue, I think, even though it has deep roots decades and centuries into the past, changed in a significant way just over the last generation precisely because the partisan nature of the question became so much more clear. When you, it, it has always been the case that almost any restriction, any, 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 incremental increased difficulty of voting is going to hit minority voters, young voters, poor voters. Um, right. In the past, there wasn't, minority voting was just a smaller piece of the pie. Uh, th the generational difference was, was not that clear cut. But you have this situation coming into, coming into being over, starting in the 1990s, where on every front, the more people who vote, it's going to be better for the Democrats and vice versa. And that right. just gives the Republican Party an overwhelming interest. You know, you don't have to be just at a practical level to try to keep voting as restricted as possible and, 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 and vice versa. And that just that just creates a, a, a reality that we're all dealing with. And to your point about, you know, if there's let's create a... Uh, you know, hypothetical land of Trumplandia somewhere out <laughs> in the Pacific Ocean that you have a huge influx and all the things that, that flow from that. One thing I was trying to, in a discussion I think I was having with, with, with colleagues, was there's this, you know, there's this question now um, of uh, b basically Puerto Rican refugees resettling in Florida. And obviously Puerto Ricans are American citizens like all of us, and they can go anywhere they, you know, go anywhere they want. And one, one thing I was trying to capture there is, let's say, um, you know, I'm in this, we're in, you know, a very democratic district in, in New York City. What if there was some big natural catastrophe in, you know, Oklahoma? And, you know, for a relatively short period of time, a few hundred thousand Oklahomans settled in our district and we're going to, you know, 
leave a few months later and we got like a, a Jim Inhofe type as our representative. Well, that would, you know, that would seem weird. That wouldn't seem, you know, that would, you, you, you would not, you could be a reasonable per- person and say, well, wait a second, this isn't, you know, this doesn't seem quite right. You know, these people just, just are here temporarily. And so there's, it is helpful to kind of, um, obviously there's a, there's a, an obvious overlay of race uh, as there is with everything having to do with, with Puerto Rico, but you can, but you can, it is helpful to kind of create hypotheticals that, that um, allow you to at least see the tendencies of one's thinking, even if you, even if you would, you know, check yourself um, before, you know, before going there. So I just, just to finish up, I, the, I guess the the one of the um, one of the uh, one of the ba- basically kind of through lines in in your in your article is that you know we we have this idea of a you know small p progressive movement starting in the early decades of the republic. And unfolding, you know, over time, more and more people get to vote. And we retrospectively see this as a making good on ideological commitments, as it were, that start at the beginning of the country. But what you make clear is that, I guess, two things. One is that it's just insanely chaotic that you know just in the literal sense of how voting takes place that it's sort of back and forth and and um you know sort of expansions and contractions that have that often have very little to do with what we would see as kind of coherent ideology they're just kind of one off and and um and opportunistic in in different directions and that immigration immigrant populations are a kind of a through line from the very early decades of the Republic until now for where the effort to restrict voting comes from. And so this isn't something new we're talking about now with the, the voting rights and immigration. This is something that goes all the way back almost to the very beginning. And in that sense, it's more predictable um, that the fights over voting are arising again in a period of immigration. Um, And it's predictable in a way that a laugh doesn't um, lead to necessarily happy predictions. When people, it's often a very powerful argument to kind of claim a essential relationship between Americanness and and democracy. And as you uh, well know, one of the you know, uh, continuing jobs of the historian is to ruin people's joy in that and to be the killjoy at the party who says that, in fact, there is no essential connection between Americanness and, and democracy, that it's torn apart and, and remade um, all the time, and that if we want to make an argument for voting rights saying it's American, um, it's not just that it's not necessarily historically accurate, um, but that it's also clearly not um, on its face compelling to the people we want to be convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that some of the interesting arguments that were made in the past, which also ended in dispiriting failure, so I'm not saying the past proves the work, um, but some of the interesting arguments made in the past uh, were about voting as a way of self-education and self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially they would ask... Like political acculturation um, almost. Yeah, that if we want people um, to be um, coming to think about their place in this society, preventing them from voting is surely not a effective way of... Um, you know, thinking about the process of them coming to see themselves as some kind of hyphenated or plural American, and that voting would be a way for people to imagine that, in that sense, to imagine it. Um, it so I, I, it's not that I think that argument will necessarily work either, but that we need a plurality of arguments, because I think that um, it, 
we're not making the case in an effective enough way. I think the other really dispiriting uh, thing that, um, you know, history doesn't teach us, but that we can find reminders of, is not to count on, inherent, not inherently to count on the courts um, to protect um, these kind of rights, uh, but that in the case um, that I uh, began with, the Jackson Giles case, uh, you have a really extraordinary um, African-American Southern lawyer with surreptitious support from Booker T. Washington bringing a series of challenges to the laws and each time being struck down and struck down in a way um, that not only outraged him, um, but also outraged and dispirited a number of Northern Republicans who believed they understood what the 15th Amendment had been meant to do and that the arguments made in these cases were right and that it didn't make a difference and that the Holmes standard in uh, the Giles case, that the way to find solutions to political problems is to re-engage in the political system, which sounds a nice and a formalistic way of keeping judges out of politics, but had the effect as a wide range of both African-American and white Observers noted in the early 1900s that it had the effect of saying, go to the people who just disfranchised you and ask them to pay attention to what you're saying. Well, that's inherently nonsensical. Um, of course, I'm hopeful that we'll do better in court challenges today. Um, but I do think that the post-World War II era of courts stepping in um, to intervene in these eras, I fear it may look more like the anomaly right. um, than like um, the norm. I was gonna, I was going to say that you know, it, it, in some ways, you know, the choice seems to be being made for us. All right, right. There's not going to be a Supreme Court to backstop the, <laughs> these, these kind of decisions, and so we're thrown back on. We will have to do it through political action if we're going to do it, despite how that may end up being naive or very difficult it's sort of like that's what that's what is and you know that's the option that we have i mean for there as 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 you know as many of our as listeners will know there is a whole uh corpus of mid 20th century uh constitutional jurisprudence precisely to this point that there are kind of isolated groups in society who can't protect themselves through politics because they are minorities and the, the majority will gang up and just keep them from getting their rights and huge amounts of of all these cases come back to the you know discrete and insular minorities and stuff like that let me let me let me ask you a final question because this kind of when when we talked about what was happening in the 1820s 30s 40s and then what happened again in the late 19th century one thought i have is that you have an interplay here coming after the revolution, coming after the Civil War, where the society as a whole, particularly the powerful, the leaders of, of the society, the, the, the uh, you know, the elite, the powerful in these, in these societies, um, get very engaged in these wars, revolutionary movements, where a democratic ideology is plays a very important role and elites get are for a variety of reasons buy into the, the, these kind of ideologies now as as we know despite a lot of the egalitarian democratic ideology coming out of the american revolution still at state level lots of people weren't able to vote and people didn't necessarily see that there was much of a problem with that but still Ideology has a powerful effect. And I wonder what you think of, is it the case that you have these, you know, you have that coming out of the revolution, you have that coming out of the Civil War, and in your piece you mentioned that there are like, there are a number of states who not only are enfranchising immigrants who fought in the war, but even in franchising ones who just promised to, to, to become <laughs> citizens. So, okay. so you have this kind of back and forth between eras of revolutionary change where, where democratic ideology kind of has, seems to have more force 
And then over time, a little more of a sense of like, well, in practice, this democracy thing <laughs> needs to, you know, needs to be reined in a little if we're going to, you know, keep things under control. Is that is that a is that a helpful prism to see to see this through? At all? <laughs> yes, I think um, there is a um, quote from W.B. Du Bois that I'm not going to get exactly right. But it's something along the lines of that it's a dispiriting fact um, that only murder makes men, as he was reflecting on why the Civil War prompted um, the, it turned out, temporary enfranchisement of African-American men, but didn't lead to the enfranchisement of women, as in fact many women's rights activists thought that it would. Um, And in uh, less poetic but more sociological language, uh, Alex Kisar and his uh, Alexander Kisar, in his survey, makes the same point of how many of the expansions of the suffrage, most obviously, uh, the Civil War and World War II, um, but even others, how intricately interconnected war, mass service, and the vote are. And as you know, this goes back to the beginning of democratic theory, back to back to Athens. Um, that uh, men who held the shield could vote and uh, the others could not. Um, Clearly something changes about that in the 20th century, especially with the enfranchisement of women, you know, decades before their inclusion uh, in the armed services as soldiers. Um, But there remains this, uh, this sort of bleak question, which is if voting rights have expanded during periods of mass conscription and war, is it, how surprising is it that in a period after the curtailment of conscription, um, we have a period that echoes other periods of relative international peace and a pullback of those voting rights. The last major expansion occurred with the Vietnam War and the movement of the voting age. Um, and since then, uh, we've had this, uh, this sort of almost continuous nibbling at the edges that now threatens to become something more significant. And I don't know, like a lot of uh, historical conundrums, it doesn't leave you in a very satisfying place. No one would wish for uh, World War III for the sake of voting rights. <laughs> um, but it does ex- perhaps illuminate why arguments that seem self-evidently true to me or to people like me um, find so little purchase in the rest of society. The idea of an inherent right to vote seems only to really have power in the aftermath of gargantuan wars. And so if we want to protect that right to vote, we have to figure out what are strategies uh, for acting in, uh, in, in peacetime and, and in so-called normal time. The other thing I would say in, you know, uh, relation to the, the question of, of the despair that comes at seeing the likelihood that the Supreme Court will not ride in to rescue voting rights, not to mention many other kinds of rights, is that here um, the ways that early Republicans in the 1850s responded to uh, the cataclysms of uh, what they saw as the growth of an anti-democratic slave power and culminating in Dred Scott, um, that there is perhaps a lesson there, which is boldness. Um, that if we can't win through the courts, then, we ha- then Democrats have to win electorally, but then they also have to make sure that they follow up those electoral victories by changing the rules of the game. And this also is sort of transgressive in a Cold War era in which the rules worked. But Republicans in the 1850s and even anti-slavery activists earlier in the 1830s had isolated that the way to fix the American system was not to win, but to win and remake the rules. And this move toward constitutional amendments um, and this willingness to go to great lengths, relying on military occupation and sometimes uh, constitution, near constitutional subterfuge, uh, can make us queasy, but mm-hmm. it also reveals a boldness. If we want to fix an affirmative voting right, it's going to have to be through remaking the Constitution, not by hoping for the good Supreme Court to come. Right. We want to recenter balances of political power. In some level, we're going to have to be willing to force through a offer of statehood to Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, if the people there want it, 
otherwise we're kind of consigning ourselves to playing with with our hands tied behind our back and for all the moderation of mid-century republicans um they didn't they didn't tie their own hands behind their back right 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 no absolutely absolutely well gregory downs thank you so much people will be able to uh read your article on the site when 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 this episode of the podcast is published and uh, thank you very much for writing it. I, I like I said, I, I really, I learned a great deal from from reading it. And I think uh, our listeners, if they read it, will get a sense of just the complexity and chaotic nature of the evolution of our country and our and our system of government. And as we've as we've focused on <laughs> a little in this in this episode, it. It can be sobering, uh, and and even even uh, you know be a source of of, of, of some pessimism sometimes. Uh, but it's but it is it is a richer and more fascinating history than the shorthand version that we often use in contemporary politics. So thank you so much for writing it, and uh, I hope people who read it enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much for having me, and I can't wait to see the rest of the series. Cool. Well, as you could, I hope you could tell. I I found this this article fascinating, um, and I learned a lot from from it. Um, you know, I, I I know the broad outlines, but there are details here that that are even just the picture, things picturing the scenes of the voting kind yeah, of polling places yeah. was sort of wild, literally wild. To yeah, kind well, of you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I, I always have people talk about you know the decline of civility and partisanship and all this kind of stuff, and I've always been kind of a bit of an outlier on that because the idea that you have a a robust democracy with a lot of voter involvement and activism and stuff. The idea that you have that and everybody is sort of calm and civil and, and like, you know, good argument. I disagree, but good argument <laughs> right. is not is is, I think, neither realistic nor even necessarily the ideal. Obviously, if you if you if things get too divided, the possibility of of democracy comes under strain. You right. have to have some level of commitment to some number of shared priorities, at least the democratic yeah. system it, it, itself. But um, it's not such a bad thing to have an element of spectacle to democracy right. and involvement. And I think one of the things that Greg brings out there is that when you make it, uh, you know, kind of into a civics class, it's a little low energy, right? <laughs> People aren't as into it. Right. So, you know, some of these things, again, it's, and it's, it's, it's not only like, well, you know, you need kind of some, some craziness to get people revved up. It, maybe that's how it should be to, to, to some extent. In any case, um, please read the piece and, and read our whole series. I think you'll, you'll learn a lot from it and, and, You'll learn things that are not just interesting things to know about our history, but things that are very important to our politics today. So let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And our 10-part series on voting rights and democracy is sponsored by the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, who, who made the series possible. So thank you so much to them. Thank you. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye. 